you know, if you go farther down, all the mountains obstruct, but there's no obstruction up there. So I, so I called triple A and uh, we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked with, because they didn't know how to find me. I, I, I told them where I was and they, I don't think I really computed with the guy on the phone and he kept saying, well, what's the address? <laughs> <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we're talking to Deirdre Wolinick. Uh, if you remember that name, that's because we had Deirdre on the show a few years ago to talk about climbing El Capitan, uh, which is a giant rock face in Yosemite Valley in California. I think it's the largest rock face in the world, or at least one of them, 3,000 plus feet straight up. And it was, uh, it's iconic, first of all, but it was also made very famous through the documentary Free Solo back in 2019. Uh, Free Solo featured Alex Honnold, who was uh, basically free soloing, climbing that rock without any rope. Uh, Alex Honnold is Deirdre's son. So yeah, she's she's the mother of Alex Honnold, which is pretty cool. So she started climbing after Alex introduced it to her. Uh, but we see where Alex gets his drive and his creativity from. Deirdre is multi-talented, extremely smart, well-traveled, and just an all-around pretty inspiring person. And so once Alex introduced her to climbing, she decided to go for some pretty big projects. So at 66... Deirdre became the oldest woman to climb El Capitan, and then this past year, at 70 years old, she again climbed El Capitan to celebrate her 70th birthday and became the oldest woman once again to climb El Capitan. So let's go ahead and jump in so Deirdre can tell her story. And also, between when we recorded this just a few weeks ago uh, and today, Deirdre has welcomed a granddaughter into this world, Alex Honnold's daughter. So congratulations, Deirdre. I hope you're doing well. Hope that's going well. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the show. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Deirdre Wolinick, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm doing as okay as can be expected in the mi- middle of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned too, it's a cold day, uh, especially for where you are in the thirties. How do you handle the cold? Or is, are you pretty accustomed to it or is it still kind of um, like, Ooh, I, I hate a- to be cold. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to be cold. That's one thing I love about, uh, you know, Sacramento. It's pretty mild most of the time too hot for me in the summer, but eh, when it is cold like this though, <laughs> I uh, I le- like to go running to keep myself in shape, you know, when I'm when I'm not actively climbing. Um, but it's too cold to run when it's in the 30s and 40s. <laughs> right. So, so not a lot of time in Yosemite this time of year. No, no, none at all, none at all. <laughs> you know, it's really cold up there. My little car doesn't handle the snow well, so I can't get over the Sierra to get there. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that, that that's very true. Well, well, tell us about you know we talked last time in in 2019, right before your book, The Sharp End of Life, came out. Um, oh, it was a, a few months beforehand, but uh, you know a lot has happened in the last few years. How how would you sum up the last few years for you in your life? 
holy cow, a whirlwind. <laughs> That's how I'd sum it up. <laughs> no, a whirlwind. Uh, the book did come out. The Sharp End of Life is out there. You can get it anywhere. You can buy books on Amazon. Uh, I was number 11 on Amazon for a while, so it's out there and doing stuff. Um, I went on a book tour. And I got as far as England on my book tour and New York and Southern Cal. Didn't you have an injury right before that too? I did. My Not an injury exactly. My left foot was uh, ripped apart and put back together in a better fashion. <laughs> um, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of damage, a lot of uh, structural damage from my whole life. You know, it's got worse and worse and worse. And so I had it repaired and uh, yeah, it was, it, it was pretty bad. <laughs> it, it was massive surgery and I was off my feet for like four months, almost five months, which is uh, horrible for me. <laughs> And for any athlete, you know, uh, not not that I'm any great shakes of an athlete, but uh, it was hard, really hard being off my feet that long. And it's I'm still actually coming back. But it has changed what I can do outdoors a lot because it didn't go terribly well. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, a lot has changed. And uh, my son has gotten married and uh, moved once or twice. And I've been up El Capitan once or twice or a few times in the ensuing three years a lot has gone on in these three years even though we you're in the middle of a pandemic there's been stuff going on and and uh, if i'm not mistaken you're you're getting ready to be a grandmother as well i am yes new experience is that exciting yes it is brand new experience a new learning experience love it that's awesome. Well, I was going to say, you know, you, you talk about not being, you know, physically being limited, but that didn't stop you from climbing El Cap recently for your 70th no, no, birthday. No, no. Well, the first time I did it was with Alex, so like four years ago, right before the book came out. And uh, I found out I can do it. Um, I don't do it the way the elite climbers do it. I mean, I don't climb the rock. With my hands, with my feet, yes, but not with my hands. I use, uh, I, I juma, which, which is say uh, I use mechanical ascenders on rope. Um, so when I was sitting around thinking about, mm, what do I want to do for my 70th? My 70th is coming up, you know? So, uh, you know, I could go to a restaurant, but you can't do that in COVID, you know? And you can't have a big group of friends get together during COVID and all this stuff. So I thought to myself, hmm, well... I never actually got to see the top of El Cap because by the time Alex and I got to the top, it was dark and it was, you know, we came down in the dark and there was not a sliver of a moon that night. So I, I really didn't see anything on the top and I wanted to see what it was like up there. I wanted to see the view from up there and I wanted to see, I wanted to see the sunset and the sunrise from the top. And so, so that occurred to me while I was thinking about my 70 that you said, Heck yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to do for my 70th. And so I started training like 15 weeks out, more or less. I made some friends who, I call them my youngins, <laughs> my young friends who were willing, you know, climbers who were willing to uh, carry stuff for me, you know, because when I made the, I, I decided I want to go up El Cap, but then a few months later I decided I want to sleep up there. You know, I want to camp up there so I can see the sunrise and sunset. So, that requires a lot of gear, a lot of stuff that I couldn't possibly carry on my own, um, you know, while going up. Because so I recruited a few friends, and they had friends, and you know, boyfriends and girlfriends and stuff, all climbers. And then, and then a few of my friends wanted to join in because uh, you know this is an opportunity to get up El Cap for regular climbers, you know, weekend climbers like me, 
this is an opportunity of a lifetime. You know, how else are you going to get to climb El Cap unless you tag along with somebody who's doing it? So a lot of my, uh, I had a friend come out from New York State and one from Arizona, one from Southern Cal. There were, I think, there were 11 of us who went, went up total. What an experience. So how did it end up going uh, as far as, you know, well, well, experiences um, in life? Was it just one of the greatest things ever? Was it more oh, difficult absolutely. than you imagined? Absolutely. I will never, ever top that as a birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what I do for my 80th, is not going to top El Cap, but, you know. But, um, yeah, we. so I my main climbing partner for that season, um, Garrett, uh, he – he he's he's in his twenties, young in you know in in shape, in form, and and training to do El Cap with his partner, as as the real elite climbers do it, you know, really to climb El Cap. And so he was training to climb El Cap anyway. And we met, we talked, we hung out for a while, and met his girlfriend, and met all, well, a bunch of people. And uh, so what I was doing, what I wanted to do, would kind of force them to to get familiar with El Cap to practice on El Cap, to, to train more, you know, and that's what, exactly what they wanted <laughs> anyway. So it was like a match made in heaven. Um, so we did, we, we trained and trained, Garrett and I trained a lot on El Cap. And uh, actually the first time he was ever on El Cap was with me. <laughs> so he, he appreciated that. I appreciated him and his help. And so it was, uh, you know, mutually a beneficial arrangement. <laughs> wow. So, so tell us, tell us a story, or tell us about something that made the experience just completely like this is why I did this. Can you cap, you know, can, encapsulate that for us through a story? El Capitan is an amazing place to be. I mean, it's it's terrifying, it's awe inspiring, it's it's not your everyday adventure, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, I'm not really sure where to start. That's a big question. Um, everything about it, just the training alone, was so good for the the soul, for the body. Um, it, it's an amazing place to be, and and you have to really, um, you know, make friends with the exposure because you're really out there, <laughs> hanging on the side of this thing. Um, I was with Alex too, but with Alex, it was go go go. We just zipped up. I zipped up those ropes. You know it took 13 hours for us to get up um, doing it on, because we did a, a, an elite climbers, route, you know, regular climbing, uh, technical climbing route. Um, he took, he climbed it, he led it technically, and then he would drop a, a static rope for me to, to clip onto, and I would climb the static rope, which is a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of physical, physical work. So um, that was, that took 13 hours. And so I got really, really accustomed to hanging on the side of this vertical 3,000-foot cliff. And it takes a while to wrap your mind around that. <laughs> it really does. And especially if you're you know, just a weekend climber like me, it's, it's not your everyday experience, <laughs> not a, by a long shot. Um, I'm not sure where to start. Do you have any specific questions? I, I'd say a, a story from your experience climbing it. Was there a moment or was it waking up and seeing sunrise that, that just made you say this? I'll never forget this. It was a combination of things, uh, really. Um, two, I get 
a little backstory first. Two weeks prior to the actual climb to my birthday, I climbed it on my actual birthday. I think it was a Thursday or a Tuesday. And um, two weeks prior, I wanted to, I guess you'd call it, do a test run, you know, if you will. I wanted to try it with just, just me and Garrett again, my main training partner. And I wanted to go up and down. Because I, I knew I could do that in one day, and I had done it with Alex. Um, I wanted to go up and down in one day, and just to be sure that I could actually get to the top, because <laughs> I had never really done that except with Alex on the other side of El Cap. It was a totally different experience. Because I had friends coming, like I said, from New York, from Arizona, from Southern California. I didn't want them, you know, to book their airplane flight if I wasn't able to do it. You know, so I, we did a test run, and it was absolutely exhausting a, a because we were going fast i wanted to get up and down in sunlight you know in a day and b because it's just exhausting <laughs> it's a three thousand yeah, foot cliff straight up um you, you know there's a lot of uh, scrambling involved i mean they the climbers call it hiking <laughs> but i wouldn't call it hiking i would call it definitely you're scrambling over boulders and trees and rocks and big things and and dangerous things and um you know a lot of scrambling and then then you get to the ropes and the the climb is basically three different thirds of terrain you know the first third is the scrambling through the forest and over big boulders and and uh, talus fields and stuff then you get to the ropes the ropes there are five i think five and a half um fixed ropes, which means they always hang there. They are they are attached to bolts that are permanent in the rock, and they always hang there. And periodically, climbers replace them or the rangers replace them or, or you know, different to keep them safe because they're out there in the elements, uh, you know, all winter long. So um, I wanted to, A, check the ropes, you know, because a lot of people were going to be using them that day, and they wanted them to be safe. And B, I wanted to see if I could do it. So, um, so we did it, and uh, it, I was absolutely wrecked. <laughs> not not wrecked uh, physically, but more more wrecked mentally. I was exhausted. But by the time I got like ninety nine percent to the top, I didn't care if I got to the top <laughs> at all. <laughs> I was too tired. But I did. I kept slogging, and we went to the top, and we went back down. And on the way back down, like two hours up from the ground still, I discovered that I'd lost my car keys and house keys. <laughs> I had fallen oh, out. I had, no. I had ripped holes in my pockets, you know, sitting on my butt, scooting down some rocks, a bunch of rocks. And uh, my keys had obviously popped out <laughs> through the hole. <laughs> um, so What was, did you do? <laughs> Well, um, you can't really leave. No, <laughs> or no. get home. My car was parked down there, and thankfully, we had gone in. You know, Garrett has a van, and so his van was parked down there, and my car was parked down there. Um, so I said, fortunately, fortunately, as the higher you go on El Cap, the better the service is. Um, cell service, yes. um, you know, yes. everything, because there's no interruption to the signal, it's just sales through, you know through the air up there. So, um, you know, you go farther down, all the mountains obstruct, but there's no obstruction up there. So I, so I called triple a and, uh, we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked with, cause they didn't know how to find me. <laughs> That's probably a first for them. 
I, exactly. As I said, I, 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 I told him where I was and he, they, I don't think it really computed with the guy on the phone and he kept saying, well, what's the address? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is no address. Um, oh my gosh. They, they, what, what are you next to? Well, I'm not next to anything. I'm on El Cap. Um, so <laughs> we went round and round. Finally, he, he got a, a, what do you call it? A locksmith on the phone with us. So we had a three-way phone call and the locksmith knew El Cap, and he knew Yosemite, you know, more or less. So, uh, he he was able to locate me. He didn't didn't come till the next day though, because it's not exactly around the corner for him. He came from the Central Valley of California, which is like a two hour trip <laughs> from where he was. So anyway, we, he came the next day. But Garrett's van was there too, so he he drove me to where I was staying that night. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so crazy! So so you never got those keys back. I did not. He had to rekey oh, my car. Yeah. The directions could have been, you know, go through the tunnel, giant <laughs> rock on your left. You can't miss it. Yeah, giant, exactly. Biggest rock you've ever seen, right on your left. Yeah. I'm right up there. Unfortunately, there are there are a million different places to park to go up that rock. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. It's it's a uh... <laughs> wow. That is that is hilarious. It, it was probably was there ever a moment that you thought. <laughs> I'm just going to go to Applebee's for my birthday. <laughs> uh, it occurred to me. <laughs> but, but we were still in COVID, and I couldn't, uh, still couldn't invite my friends and, and, and all that. You know, so. so you had to do something outside. And if you're going to be outside, might as well climb out. Might as right? well go for the gold. Exactly. Might, might as well go for it. Well, well tell us about, you know, that, that that's stressful enough having to do the practice round. People are flying in from all over the country. And by the way, I love that. That's like, hey, let's make a, you know, a, an amazing memory, an amazing experience for everybody. Exactly. Um, when was it, when did it click for you? Cause that, that can be stressful. All those plans, people coming in. When did it, when was the relief? Was it when you got close to the top or were you about halfway up and thought I've got this? No, no. When we started out in the morning, I knew, I knew, I knew I could do it, you know, and I knew that my friends were capable. Two of the friends well, all of them. Well, all of them had never been up El Cap. Two of them had never even been on El Cap, even down by the the ground. You know, what, what, had any of them never been to Yosemite? Uh, no, I think they'd all been there before. Okay, still, I mean, it's, so it's mind blowing. So which is kind of worse because they knew what to expect, <laughs> right? <laughs> As they were planning for. But one of them had never used Jumars before. Or, you know, the the mechanical ascenders, and. We didn't have her own, so one of the, one of my youngins, one of my young climber friends, you know, lent lent her a pair. Um, so she was learning as she went, <laughs> but she's a lot younger than I am, and a lot a lot smaller, a lot lighter, a lot more lithe. You know, she did fine. They all did fine. So no, I I had no trepidations that morning. I'm, we started out at five thirty in the morning. And I knew I was going up El Cap. Whatever else happened, wh- wh- you know, whoever else dropped out of the the, the story, I I didn't. It didn't affect what I was going to do. I knew I was going to the top, <laughs> and whoever else could make it was welcome to go with me. Yeah. You know? um, but no, there was there was no uh, there was no trepidation at the beginning, really. What did it feel like to uh, to summit and to have champagne and cake at the top oh, that was such a, that's a, such a cool thing and that was a complete surprise to me i had take i brought with me when i when my son's movie came out you know free solo uh, i went to a lot of the premieres i went to the oscars 
and we got a bunch of little gifts uh, at the dinner. The dinner, the dinner the night before, they gave us a little packet of, you know, gifts. And, and I, one of the things was a little, um, a, a little individual sized bottle of champagne, the real good champagne, like Moet, Moet Chandon, you know, the, the good stuff. And so I had saved that. I, I, I figured I'd probably never open it. <laughs> you know, it was just because uh, I went to the Oscars. Who gets, who gets to go to the Oscars that, you know, you know, so I was just going to save it, but I brought it up for my 70th birthday on El Cap. You know, I got it, you know, I got it in, in honor of a movie on El Cap. Heck, I was going to use it on El Cap. So I brought it up with me. So I figured that would be my birthday celebration, you know, because all, all these other guys were carrying haul bags, which are like almost as tall as I am. And these haul bags were filled with all of our gear. Because once I decided to camp up there, which is different from going up and down, we did that with just a bag on our back. But camping up there, especially with three old women, <laughs> requires, requires uh, you know, a sleeping pad. I can't just sleep on the ground. I, I That ship has sailed long ago. <laughs> I have too many bone anomalies and spurs and, and you can't. Garrett and his friends, they all agreed to carry our camping stuff. So, you know, a, a, a sleeping pad, a sleeping bag, food for dinner, water for dinner and for drinking and water for everything, for washing, for water for, you know, and breakfast. And all that stuff is very heavy. <laughs> so I knew, you know, he was carrying all that stuff. I'd carry my little bottle of champagne. I had, I had it on my back. Um, so we got up to the top and I'm, I'm kind of skipping a lot here, but you mentioned the champagne. I sat, sat down, you know, at, at, as we all made our dinners, we all carried our own little backpacking food in our backs, on our backs. And, uh, as we made our dinners, <laughs> I opened, I got out my bottle of champagne and, uh, you know, for after dinner, for our dessert, for my birthday party, as it were. And I was opening my little bitty bottle and worked, working hard on it. And Garrett pulled out a real big bottle of champagne. <laughs> I, he, he had carried up on his back, not only all my stuff and my water and all that junk and clothes and everything, food. He brought up I think three bottles of champagne and little uh, plastic flute glasses to drink it in and, and birthday cakes. <laughs> Holy cow. I, I was astounded. They had all this birthday party stuff, which all is heavy. You know, that was a large commitment on their part, on his part. I don't, I don't, I think he carried it all. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Um, so we had a real birthday party up there. I was absolutely floored, absolutely astounded that they would do that because that's a, a large commitment. Of, right. I, of you was probably thinking, I wish you had told me you were bringing some out of a left a bottle. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's probably been a more deserving uh, consumption of an Oscar champagne bottle than what you <laughs> exactly it's literally about the rock that you're on exactly and that's a great point like you know that rock is 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 so important to you to your family uh, how much were you thinking about that i know that you know you've climbed this before but this is you know four years later how much were you thinking about that as you were going up not at all <laughs> not at all i was too busy <laughs> um no it's a 
it's a completely demanding climb, it really, no matter how you do it, whether you do it the way my son does it on the rock, on the, you know, the, the elite routes that go up the rock, you know, or, or whether you go up, because what we, what we right. went up was called the descent route. It's the way all the climbers come down because you can, you know, it's really, really hard to come down off any of the other routes. There are 105, I think, climbing routes up El Cap. And, you know, on the west side and on the east side, it, it's kind of a, you know, the nose is kind of the middle seam of the rock and it, it folds away to the left and to the right, the west and east side. And there are 105 climbs up both sides. And everybody who goes up, any of those 105 climbs, they all come down the descent route because it does in, there are, you know, the fixed ropes hanging there that you can um, use your grigri on, you know, descend the ropes. And it has the other two thirds that are uh, scrambling, you know, so it's, you can get down that way. So, but any way you do it, whether you're going up the descent route or a a real climbing route, uh, you know, a technical climbing route, um, it's hard work. It's immensely hard work. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an endurance climb for sure. And you have to be present mentally, emotionally, whatever, all of those things. You have to really be present because you could, I mean, there are bad things that can happen. <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> and you have to really pay attention. I didn't think about anything but what I was doing <laughs> all the way up. Um, for two reasons. One, because you have to be really careful. You have to be aware. You have to be really sure of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And you have to really, for me anyway, for, for somebody who's 70, you have to really marshal all of your strength. It's a, it's an endurance climb. And so I fought fatigue all the way up. Once, I mean, I knew I could do the ropes because I've done the ropes countless times uh, practicing, you know, training for both events you know four years ago in this event like i said i trained for like 15 weeks to do this because it is an endurance climb <laughs> and then and then you know as you, as you reach 70 your endurance starts to wane a little bit um so i didn't really think about anything else but being careful being attentive and and my friends you know seeing where they were and being attentive to them and um marshalling my strength, my fatigue, uh, you know, trying to keep going. <laughs> there were a lot of times where I, I'd, I'd stopped, I'd, you know, put my hands on my hips and try to suck in some air because the air is thinner. And I, my biggest problem um, for any, for any um, endurance activity of any kind, uh, any sustained physical activity, my biggest problem is breathing because I grew up in, you know, a, a, a a huge cloud. My house was a huge cloud of cigar and cigarette smoke for like 20 something years. I grew up in You're that. You're talking about as a child? As a child, yeah. So yeah, New York I, City. I was, I was like the poster child for secondhand smoke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so anything more strenuous than getting up out of my chair and I'm huffing and puffing, um, it, you know, it really damaged my lungs. Um, so, so anything <laughs> endurance like that, I really have to work hard. I, I, I strain a lot more than, than all the people with me, you know, and my foot, of course, my foot slowed me down a lot too, because I, I can no longer like, what do they call that flex or you know, point my foot straight down, you know, and coming back down, that was a real hindrance, <laughs> a real hindrance. And not only can I do it, but it's painful to try to do it. So, so 
they would you know just point their feet down and race down the slabs up the top of the up the the top third of the climb. I couldn't do that. I had to turn my foot and kind of use my heel to brake on it, you know, and, and it, it was a lot harder for me than it was for them. They don't realize that, and they probably never will until they're 70 and their foot has been wrecked, you know. But, you um, know, I didn't want to complain about it. It was my day, but it was my fault that we were up there <laughs> having this trouble. But it was a lot harder for me than it was for them. Um, so, I, yeah, I didn't have time to think about all that stuff until I got to the top. And when I got to the top, it was like, you know, tears time. I was, uh, I was wrecked. It was, uh, what's the word? It was a very emotional experience, you know, to, to have done all that and to have done all that with, with all those friends and, uh, to have the, the opportunity and just, I mean, what's, what's the word? I know a lot of people who, I have known a lot of people in my life who didn't get to reach this age, you know, and, uh, who didn't have these opportunities and it, it's just it was overwhelming what do you think you learned through the experience oh goodness <laughs> i could write a book about that <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe, I <will. laughs> maybe maybe that's book number two right there what tell me this what's what's one thing you learned maybe not the most important because that puts a lot of well, pressure, I, learned but... that, I learned that no matter what shape i'm in because i'm really you know my foot's wrecked and my my from from the foot issue I was limping for so many months that it threw out my the knee on the other side, you know, my good knee, <laughs> my formerly good knee, <laughs> threw that out too. Uh, from all the, the, I you know, my body was out of kilter for so long. It threw out my knee and my anyway. So I have a lot going on physically, and and uh, you know, I'm a lot older than what I did the last time, and uh, I've I've kind of learned that no matter what's going on physically, emotionally, mentally, I got all kinds of stuff going on. I can, I can block it out, and I can do what I need to do. Darn it! <laughs> I said, I, I, it, it was, it was one of a series. I'm not sure how to put it. I don't, I don't think I've ever set myself a goal in life that I didn't reach, that I didn't accomplish, which is really, really good to know about yourself. Um, once I get to the point where I commit to a goal, you know, I do it. End of story. And this one was a goal that for many, many reasons, <laughs> I've gone into like the tip of the iceberg here, but for many reasons, I, I wasn't sure I'd be able to do it. So it was really gratifying to get up to the top, exhausted and wrecked and gasping for air and just wishing I hadn't done it. <laughs> and yet... On some level, you know, glad that I, on, on one little bitty tiny level, wishing I hadn't done it because it was exhausting and hard and all that, but still glad I had done it. And uh, it's, it's, it's really, what's the word? I guess gratifying is the word. Satisfying um, to know that you can put everything else aside and just go do it. That is, that is interesting that you mentioned you've never set a goal for yourself that you couldn't meet or you didn't meet. Yeah. How do you go about choosing these goals? Because you first climbed El Cap at 66. Like, wh what what is the process to you about something becoming a goal? Because, you know, for your 70th birthday, for instance, there there is literally a million things you could do. What leads you to choose something and then go after it, if that makes sense? How do you sift through all the possibilities? It's really simple. It's whatever grips me 
passionately the most. It's always been that. Um, whatever, I mean, it. an idea pops into my brain, into my heart, whatever you want to call it, into my psyche. And the moment that the idea pops into my little brain, I know that that's what I'm going to do. It's always been that way. Like when I started my orchestra, I, I, cre- I created an orchestra. When, I, when we moved to West Sacramento, yep. I yep. created an orchestra and I conducted it for four years, um, which is which is no small feat. <laughs> uh, that, that's scarier to me than, than El Cap, if you want I, to be it honest. Is. It is a very scary proposition. and um, But the moment that I had the idea, the moment that I, the idea popped into my brain, my heart, whatever you want to call that, I knew I was going to do it because I knew it just needed to be done. And I knew that I was the one to do it. I just, I just, I, I don't know how to explain that. I just knew. And when you start with that uh, uh, definiteness, uh, absoluteness, uh, certainty, okay, there's, there's a good word for it. When you start with that kind of certainty, you know you're going to get there. No matter what happens, you'll figure it out, you know, whatever obstacles come up you'll figure it out because passionately you know that that's the right thing to do that's how it was with the orchestra um that's how it was when i like when i decided to 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 move to france for the year for my junior year of college i had never lived away from home before i had never my parents were so controlling and and so eastern european and uh, uh, you know, I was mommy's little girl, and, and I went to, to high school in the city, and I went to college in the city. So I, I was under their thumb, you know, 100%. And then I decided to go to France for my junior year of college. They didn't think I could do it. They didn't think I'd qualify. So they said, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I did qualify. I was at the top of my class in, in, in all of my languages, and, and, you know, so I qualified no problem. But, um, I mean, moving away not only away, but around the world <laughs> for, for a year, you know, this wasn't a semester abroad or, or, you know, a, a small crash course. This is a whole year of school. Um, sounds kind of scary in retrospect, but it didn't to me, <laughs> not one bit. <laughs> um, so all of these things I've done, I've, I've done all kinds of things about becoming a publisher. I mean, I had no intentions of becoming a publisher, but, but when the idea took root, um, it was, I mean, how would you start to become a publisher? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what publishers do? Most people don't have a clue what publishers actually do. I didn't either. But I had so, a great so what book. do you do? Like, that's, you've done this so many times in life. How do you go about saying, okay, this is what I want to do now? Well, the first thing you have to do. What do you do to get to that point that you can do it? The first thing you have to do when you have an idea like this that you absolutely can't put aside you know, you, you, it, it batters at your brain until you just scream, okay, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, it, it's, not, it's not a choice, really. It, it, it just takes over your brain. So when, the first thing you have to do is find out what you need to know and what you need to do to know that. So I had to find out what publishers do. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, so I started reading and started going to the libraries and asking, you know, librarians are wonderful sources of information. <laughs> and, and I started, uh, you know, going, I, by that point, um, I was, there was a web, 
that I could use. I wasn't too well versed in using it, but you know, because this is a long time ago. Um, so you have to to do this kind of thing. You have to just find out what you need to know. I mean, like when when Alex said, "Yeah, sure, mom, we can go up Bill Cap." <laughs> you know, four years ago, what four and a half years ago now. Um, I didn't really fully expect him to agree to take me up El Cap because he knows what kind of climber I am. I, I'm no great shakes of a climber. I never will be. I started old. I started. I was almost 60 when I started climbing. I had kids. I had all kinds of jobs, and I can only do it, you know, now and then. You know, so, so I'll never be a really good climber. And he knows this. <laughs> so I didn't really expect him to say yes, but he did. He said, "Yeah, yeah, sure, mom. But you have to learn how to jug." So. That stopped me, and and I didn't say anything about that. And then he left on another one of his expeditions. He was gone out of my life for, for months and months. Uh, so I had to learn how to jug. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I didn't even know the word. So I went online and, and I asked all my friends by email, you know, what's jugging? What? Are, and found out what that meant. So you have to learn what you need to know. I needed to know about jugging. I needed to know how to do it. And then you need to. Find out what you need to have or to do. So I had to have Jumars. I didn't know what Jumars were, <laughs> so I had to find out. So you start from scratch, and you have to find out what you need to know, and then what you need to have, what you need to do. And that's all anybody does in any job. And people don't think about it that way because they did it when they were 19 or 20 or whatever in their first job. And never thought about that afterwards. But that's what you do in any job. You find out what you need to know. You know, in most cases, it's a, you have to know about your field, whatever your field is. That's what you study in college or in a technical school or whatever. That's what you need to know. And in that school, you find out what you need to have, what you need to be able to do to do that job. It's the same. And and in that, there's, I'm sure plenty that you you when you find out what you need to know same with climbing for you there's plenty that you realize you don't need to learn or you don't need to know yes Um, i need to singularly focus on this one thing that alex told me to to focus on to to achieve this goal exactly i'm sure you need to sift through that information yourself exactly like when i became when i became a conductor i didn't have to know everything about conducting i didn't have to know everything about all the music we were going to do i had to tailor my education, if you will. I had to tailor it to exactly what I was going to be doing. And so I did. And it worked out wonderfully. (laughs) It was amazing. Well, I don't mean to dwell on this, but this is such incredible wisdom. For like, What kind of timeline do you give yourself to achieve some of these? Or what kind of timeline have you experienced going from zero to achieving the goal you know what I mean? Because some yeah, of us feel like, oh, to be an orchestra conductor, yeah. I, I have to study for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. But in reality, what what is it? What have you experienced well, with go, pursuing an idea from nothing? It depends, of course, on you know what what field the idea right. is in. Yep. With the conducting, I mean, I had I had studied conducting all my life. I had gone to Central Park, you know, in the summers when the the symphony in New York gave outdoor concerts. I saw the greats and I watched them because I, I always was interested in this stuff, you know, and I watched them on television. I got to see Leonard Bernstein in person. I got to see, Aaron, you know, Aaron Copeland is from New York. They're, all the biggies are from New York. 
And so I watched them. I grew up with them. And uh, I knew that I knew enough about it to do this. I had nothing on paper. I had no degree in this. I had no diplomas. I had no training, you know, real training. All of my music is self-taught. But it was self-taught for, at that point, like 45 years. That's <laughs> yeah, a long time to learn anything. Um, and 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 the motivation, of course, was there, you know. Um, so it depends on, on the, what it is. And like for the climbing, I knew there were a lot of aspects of climbing that, that I would never be able to master. I know this. Uh, it's still true. It'll always be true. I'm, I'm, I started too old. I, I don't have the upper body strength for, you know, like I can't do pull-ups and push-ups and all that stuff. Um, so you have to whittle down the whole skill to just what you need to know. And that, I guess, is a skill in itself, knowing what you don't need, you know. And a lot of people would need, I, I would guess, guidance to do that. Um, I've just, I've always been an individualist, I guess. <laughs> I just figured it out myself, you know. I don't know. Does that, kind of, does that answer your question, kind of? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it does sound like, too, these very, you know, these varied skills and these varied interests that you've had uh, through your life, uh, you know, bud from something, some seed that's been planted, What you know, studying yeah, abroad yeah, or, yeah. Uh, you know, being passionate about music and language and having a son who's very gifted at climbing. If that yeah, yeah. seed wasn't there, you might yeah. not be, have ever had, you wouldn't have the ability to know what you needed to know. And like, exactly. so it's felt natural in a way. Is, is there something that maybe, um, a skill or an area or, or, or an idea that you can see coming down the line that it's like, I would love to do more of that. I just haven't had those things line up yet or had that idea uh, come about yet. Um, well, heck yeah. <laughs> All kinds of things. <laughs> All kinds of things. I, mean, I love to try new stuff. I mean, there's a, within the world of climbing again, I mean, there's all kinds of things I want to accomplish or try, or at least, you know, at least try at least there are a lot of, Places in the world I would love to go climb because everywhere you go, I'm, I mean, I have climbed in, in a lot of places in the world. I've climbed in Greece and in Mexico and France and Canada a little bit. And everywhere you go, the rock is different and the experience is different. And and ev everywhere I go, I get to use my languages, which I love, you know. And so all five of them, right? Yeah, well, I can get by. I have four and a half that are fluent. And I have four more that I can kind of get by and be sociable in. So, you know, anywhere I go, I can get by, you know, um, except the Asian languages, you know, like Chinese and Indian. And I don't know any of those. But um, so the, I like, to, climb, I like to, to combine the climbing experience with, you know, cultural and linguistic experiences. But there's other stuff too. I, I, all kinds of things I like to do. I, I I don't usually know about them until the idea occurs to me. Um, and like like you know like the orchestra or like publishing. Never in a million years would I have ever thought about becoming a publisher. Never. Didn't interest me in the slightest. But I had to. I kind of had to. Cause my I had a publisher for my first book way way back in 1985. Uh, 88. I had a publisher and uh, we had a great book ready to roll. And I had done the uh, pre, the pre, pre marketing info for them. Cause I was local and the book the book was called, it was about tour, touring Sacramento 
the Sacramento region with children, you know, Sacramento with kids eventually it became, but, but so I had a publisher and at the moment of publication, they, they went under. <laughs> so I was absolutely destroyed. I was wrecked. My, my baby, my first published book dead in the water because they went under, you know, they, they belly up. And so I, I, my two options were to, you know, put it in my desk drawer and say, well, that was an interesting experience and move on. Or, well, three, three possibilities or try to sell it to another publisher or do it myself. I didn't want to do it myself, but it turns out that no other publishers out there are interested in a book with that's that small a market. You know, Sacramento is too small for like a New York publisher to take on. So my only option was to forget about it or to publish it myself. So I did. I learned. I found out what I needed to know. Yeah, found out what I needed to do. I became a business. I had no intentions of ever being a business. I hate that whole world, but I am now a business. <laughs> what made you want to pursue the business aspect when you hated it? Did you find some unforeseen? I did, I did uh, not want to pursue the business aspect, but I wanted my darn book published. <laughs> Did you enjoy that pursuit of uh, starting the publishing business? Okay. So, so you found that along the way that, okay, I actually enjoy this. I enjoy any learning experience, basically. I love learning new stuff. And this was a learning experience par, par, par excellence, you know. Um, so I learned and learned and learned. And, and in time, I became, <laughs> I became the president of the Sacramento Publishers Association. <laughs> How about that? Um, and I remained their president, I think, two years. And the Sacramento Publishers Association has grown and grown. And now it's called the Northern California Publishers and Authors, I think. But I'm not part of it anymore because uh, I'm not publishing anymore right now. I'm too busy. <laughs> but but yeah, I love I love learning new stuff. And, and any of these ventures of mine, I mean, you really have to recreate your entire education. You have you have to learn from scratch, you know. And and I enjoy that. So it's a challenge. How far ahead do you plan? Obviously, you plan for this birthday, but how far do you plan your life ahead? Because it sounds like so many of the things you do and you're passionate about came from circumstance, came because you had to or something was forced. How do you look ahead in your life? Well, you know that old saw, the old adage that says, you know, uh, life is what happens when we're making other plans. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've heard that, but I forgot yeah. about it. That's, I, yeah. that's a great that, reminder. Yeah. I kind of live by that because none of these things were planned. You know, when the, when the publisher went under and I was kind of thrust into that, I hadn't planned for that. I had no intentions of ever doing anything like that. I hated the whole you know business world. I just nothing, nothing, no interest whatsoever. And then it was thrust upon me and I made that choice and the orchestra too. I, I, I knew, I mean, all my life I'd, you know, watched the conductors. I, I knew I knew that stuff. I knew how to do it. I, and I can play, you know, various instruments. I've played in uh, many orchestras and chamber groups and, and performed solo and duo and all that stuff all my life. But I knew in my heart of hearts that, you know, I'm not trained in that. I have nothing on paper, nothing to prove that I know what I know. And so I knew that I'd never, ever be able to conduct an orchestra. And then we moved to West Sacramento, 
where they're back then West Sacramento it's on the other side of the river from Sacramento and it's in a different county so it's really a different entity and it wasn't a city back then <laughs> excuse me <laughs> it's a city now but it wasn't a city back then it was an unincorporated area and it was a sleepy little dusty delta town and there was nothing there for everything, for everything that the residents needed in West Sac, they went across the river to Sacramento. There were no stores. There was no cinema. There was no culture of any kind. There was nothing there. And I didn't want to raise my babies in that kind of environment. So my choice was to always be driving across the river with everybody or to create it right in our own little town. And so I decided to do that. I created the orchestra. And uh, so it's, it's always been kind of thrust upon me. And in retrospect, you know, in hindsight, it was a great idea. <laughs> but when it's happening, it's not, not usually a great idea. I never wanted to be a publisher. I really didn't. Um, there are other things, too. You know, this is like a, a repeating current throughout my life. You know, life is what has happened while I was making other plans, as it were. You know, so... I don't really plan out. Like going up El Cap, of course, I had to plan. I, I had to train for first time. I trained for eighteen weeks. That's like a college course, you know. And the second time, this time uh, for my birthday, I trained for fifteen weeks. Um, so yeah, that's that's that involves a lot of pre-planning and, and orchestration, if you will. But I, yeah, it's been largely thrust upon me. <laughs> I never really planned it for most of these things. Was there a Similar to how other things have kind of come about, was there ever a path or an idea or a skill or an opportunity that you think back on and think, I kind of wonder what was down that road, but things just didn't line up how they did with publishing or being in the or you know starting the orchestra oh, or, yeah. or climbing yeah. even. Is there one in particular that thought, I wonder what was down there? Um. Yeah, well, I mean, life is nothing but choices. You know, every day you make choices, and and. There were some things that, you know, jobs that we didn't take, my husband and I, uh, or the things we interviewed for that might have been wonderful, but might not have. You know, you never know. You can't you can't second guess yourself in, in retrospect. You know, you can't. Uh, you know, regrets are useless. Uh, thinking, oh, I wonder what if. You know, that, that's ridiculous. That's a waste of time. Just move on. Um, so yes and no. You know, to that. Yeah. That, it doesn't sound like you're the type of person that dwells on that too much. Well, well, you know, speaking of that and living this way, what would you, what kind of maybe advice would you give yourself 30, 40 years ago about what you know you're, you're capable of now in your 70s um, and knowing how much life there actually is left to live? Um, I'm not sure because I was a lot, a lot dumber back then. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard <laughs> it's hard to hard to take this the experience I have now and transplant it back there because you know I, I was making choices kind of on the blind back then. Um, not all of them, but some of them. Um, I I wish I had known like like one thing that did definitely change my life that I wish I had known way back then, and that was the moment when um, I don't know. Do we do we have another few minutes for a little story? Sure, absolutely. Um, I went through a period of like five, six, seven years when people were dying all around me and I was winding up doing more and more work, more and more like estate. My, my 
father-in-law died. And then the next summer, my, my own father died. And when he died, I wound up with three houses in Pennsylvania that I had to deal with and all my own alone while working more than full time and while changing offices. And while I, I had, I was doing the work of like six people and I was the executive. uh, And the next, the year following that, my husband, I divorced my husband and then he died like five weeks later. And uh, so this is raising children too, while raising children, while teaching more than full time, while all the, while, um, while taking care of my own home and gardens and, and, dog and and it's exhausting and i never had a moment to myself like it's like six seven years and so every day i would go off to the college i would teach all day i do my lesson planning do my grading i would come home change my clothes go down in the office and become the executor of my husband's estate which was extremely messy long story anyway he it, it was extremely he hadn't prepared anything um and he had done everything the way he wanted not the way the companies wanted and and so it, it was very messy i worked on that for like two years all every waking moment when i was not teaching i was doing that and, and so like 10 11 o'clock at night i would i couldn't see any longer i would get up and i would take our big dog for a walk to kind of clear my head before bed and back then I think I already mentioned that, you know, I did, I knew that I couldn't do any sustained physical activity, but, but it was a very big dog. It was a Malamute and she, you know, built to pull, built to run. And so I trot along be, beside her and we'd go for our walk. And, uh, and one night I, I came bursting through the door with the dog and yelling, Alex, Alex, he, Alex w- was not living there, but he was coming through once in a while, restocking his van and breasting, whatever. And um, so he was there. I came running through the, the kitchen yelling, Alex, Alex, I just ran a mile with the dog. And and, and I knew I had reached my Everest because I, I knew that I couldn't do this stuff, you know, in, in any uh, significant fashion. Um, so I, I had climbed Everest. I, I was I was over the moon. I had run a whole mile. Imagine that with my lungs. And so Alex comes walking down the hall, munching his cooking, said, Oh, cool, Mom. If you can do a mile, you can do a mile and a half. And that completely took the wind out of my sails. I, I was <sighs> deflated. And at the same moment, I knew that he was absolutely right. If you can do a mile, you can do a mile and a quarter, a mile and two more steps. If you can do two miles, you can do two and a quarter, two and a half. If you can do a half a marathon, you can do a whole marathon. There is no end to that philosophy, that mindset. There is no end to that mindset. And if you embrace that mindset, you can do anything. And I mean that quite literally. If you embrace that mindset fully, you can do anything. Somebody like me (laughs) to go up El Cap is so unrealistic and ridiculously impossible. And yet, here I am. If you can embrace that mindset, you can do anything. Anybody can do anything, but people don't. And I'm not sure why. I, I, I blame our schooling for a lot of that, our educational system for a lot of that, and our, our media for a lot of that. I mean, we are told our entire lives, if you're this age, you should be taking these pills and you should be, you know, 
taking this medicine to go to sleep, this, and you should not be doing this. Don't, don't do this without talking to your doctor first. And, you know, it, it's hammered into us. If you watch television, most of the ads are for drugs these days. It's horrible. It should be illegal. It's anyway, that's one of my soapboxes. You, you got me on a, on a roll here. Do you think that that period, that five to seven year period is what, I don't know, maybe fueled these last few decades of, of well, it's not, not, not you really, know what I mean? Yeah. Not did, really. Did you feel like it. you had to go through that? Not really fueled it, but it made me understand that I can do anything. If I could get through that, doing the work of six people, I was remodeling three houses in Pennsylvania and one in California while doing all that. I was doing it by phone every day. I would call Pennsylvania at five in the morning because you know the time difference and you know, pick, I would pick carpeting and, and they would tell me the problems with the brads in the walls. And I was remodeling four houses at the same time while teaching full time, while this, while that, while that, while being the executor of, oh. if I could do that, I could do anything. Literally. That's inspiring. But, yeah, but what I learned is that anybody can do anything if they embrace that mindset that my son t- takes for granted, you know? Oh, yeah, sure, Mom. Bravo. You know, if you can do that, you can do a mile and a quarter. <laughs> and so and so I did. I went out and did a mile and a half, and then I did two miles. And then, and then it, you know, I've done four marathons now and uh, lots of half marathons. And, so, yeah, anybody can do anything. They they just don't know it yet. <laughs> they just don't know it yet. So, speaking of which, what are you uh, what are you doing for your 80th birthday? Oh, that's way off in the distance. <laughs> I'm, I'm still planning my, my Yosemite season for this summer. I have a there lot of plans. I have plans for this season. And Garrett and you know, some of the others from my ascent with them this last year, they're going to help me do it. Well, um, if, if I've learned anything from you is, is 10 years – there, you never know what you might be into. Exactly. Exactly. Can't plan <laughs> that far. Yeah. No, you can't. Well, holy cow. What an amazing conversation to start out the week. Uh, I yeah. can't thank you enough for making the time. Sure. I, I, I enjoy it. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. And I will point everyone to your book. Where is the place you would like to people people to buy your book? Uh, the um, well, the, the easiest for most people is just to click on Amazon, and that's fine. Uh, you can get it in Barnes and Nobles or, or any of the big bookstores. Um, you anywhere, anywhere you buy books, you can get it. Fantastic. Well, I can't recommend it enough. I have a copy right here on my desk, and I uh, yeah, I'll let you know when this comes out. And until we talk again, have a wonderful day and and uh, keep inspiring people. <laughs> Thanks. Bye bye. All right. First of all. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.